Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 56, the first Western esotericist, Philo of Alexandria. Well, it's taken more than a year of episodes of this podcast, but we have finally arrived at the real deal, a genuine Western esotericist. Not a precursor, not an important ingredient in the later esoteric cocktail, but a full-blooded, covering all the bases, Western esotericist. And you really could not ask for a more fascinating, nor a more pivotal and central figure with which to begin the history of Western esotericism proper than Philo of Alexandria. But before we explore Philo's life, work, and thought, let's pause to take stock. What in the first place makes Philo Western, and what makes him esoteric? And is there perhaps some third thing, or things, typical of the specifically Western esoteric traditions that Philo exemplifies, such that when we look at him, we can see a link to later Western esoteric traditions? Well, let's get a sense, first of all, of what we know of Philo's basic life story here, which isn't very much as it happens. Philo of Alexandria, also sometimes known as Philo Judaeus, or Philo the Jew, was an aristocratic Jew from Alexandria in Egypt, living in the first century CE, so the early Roman imperial period. He was probably born between 20 to 10 BCE, and probably lived until sometime in the reign of the Roman emperor Claudius, so he died in 41 CE at the earliest probably a bit later. This puts him right at the end of the second temple period we've been discussing in previous episodes. Now, we said aristocratic. Philo's family were one of the leading Jewish clans of Alexandria at the time, and Alexandria was the most important center for Hellenized Jewry at the time. The family of Philo were ridiculously rich by all accounts, and involved in politics at the highest levels. Philo's brother Alexander was the alabarch, which was an important tax-collecting figure under the Hellenistic rule, and then under the new Roman administration of Egypt as well. And Philo's nephew, Alexander's son, Tiberius Julius Alexander, was first procurator of Judea and later prefect of Egypt under Nero. Philo himself was involved in politics as well, as we shall see, but represents himself as preferring the philosophic life of contemplation with which all the worldly cares of being a prominent citizen work continually interfering. Now, you may have noticed that the names Philo, Alexander, and Tiberius don't sound particularly Jewish. Indeed, the first two are Greek. And the Roman Tiberius in the name of Philo's nephew signals to us that the family, who had done very well and had assimilated to Hellenic culture under the Ptolemies, were now moving just as naturally into the Greco-Roman cultural sphere and taking Roman names. Listeners will remember that while there were elements within Second Temple Jewry who wanted to reject what they saw as Hellenic impurities in the ancestral Jewish faith, like the Maccabees and other hardline back-to-the-Torah identity politics Jews, even the Maccabees had their official propaganda translated into Greek, known to us as the books of Maccabees, which some folks actually include in the Bible, 
It's great to be all Hebrew, but if you want your message to be read by actual Jews, you wanted Greek or Aramaic, for sure. So Hellenistic culture, for more mainstream Jews, on the other hand, was no more foreign to what it meant to be Jewish than, say, the modern melting pot of New York City is some, somehow un-Jewish to its many Jewish residents. There are doubtless some ultra-Orthodox Jews in New York who inveigh against the bagel as a corrupt innovation. But for most Jews, bagels are a classic bit of tasty Jewish cuisine. Now, getting back to Philo's life, we are hazy on a whole lot of detail, but we know that he wrote a lot, and we still have a lot of what he wrote. An incredible religio-philosophical opus, which we shall be exploring. And one episode in his life stands out as particularly interesting. As an old man, Philo was chosen to lead a delegation of the Jews of Alexandria to appeal to the Roman Emperor Gaius, also known as Caligula, in the year 39 or 40 CE. So the Ptolemies, the pre-Roman Hellenistic dynasty which had ruled Egypt for a few centuries, so these were the successor state of uh, Alexander the Great, the sort of Egyptian empire ruled by a Greco-Macedonian elite. Cleopatra was the final Ptolemaic ruler, if that rings any bells. The Ptolemies had officially recognized certain groups within their realm as ethnoi, that is, cultural groupings with an official status and certain rights to self-government. For example, they could have their own courts, which ran in parallel with the legal system of the overarching state. So the Jews of Alexandria had long been an established ethnos, and so they had an official status as Jews. With the coming of the Romans, this setup basically continued. So when trouble was flaring up between the Jews of Alexandria and the Greco-Egyptians, the embassy sent to Rome to seek the emperor's intervention, Caligula, please come and stop the riots because it's getting really bad in Alexandria, this embassy headed by Philo was an official embassy of the Jewish ethnos. Josephus tells us about this embassy, as does the one surviving book of Philo's own account of it. So it's a solid and dateable event. As for the rest of Philo's life, however, we're much less certain about dating. We don't know how he died, although we know it was after Claudius became emperor through a reference to his reign in the document we were just talking about. Now, Philo was a really Hellenized Jew. He tells us about his education, which was the classic encyclopedic Hellenistic education, which was the standard from Afghanistan to Athens in the Hellenistic period, and was soon to become the standard in the Roman Empire as well, extending its reach as far as Spain and Britain. So he spoke Greek and read his Hebrew scriptures in the Greek and refers to Greek as our language, but his Hellenism was on another level from just being a Greek-speaking Jew because he had the proper Hellenic education. He knew Homer, he knew the Greek dramatists, he knew the classics. What he didn't know, as far as we can tell, is Hebrew. He makes occasional forays into esoteric Hebrew etymology where he'll interpret a given name from scripture according to its supposed Hebrew meaning, but these do not show a strong grasp of the language at all. And it's been thought that he was working from some kind of handbook that was written for Jews who didn't know Hebrew. Now, Philo was definitely a Jew. His whole work, in fact, is based on exegesis of Jewish scriptures, 
what we call the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch. He identifies as a Jew. He's dismayed by his nephew's rather too cosmopolitan disdain for the ancestral customs of the Jews. But his interpretive lens is fascinatingly Greek. Philo's worldview is an astonishing synthesis of Platonic, Neopythagorean, and Stoic ideas, fairly typical of the movement known as Middle Platonism, and we'll be talking about that in a few episodes' time more generally. A fusion of these ingredients with religious Judaism. He propounds, in essence, a Middle Platonist religious Judaism, in which Moses is the greatest philosopher of all time, but an esoteric philosopher who wrote in such a way as to preserve his meanings hidden from, well, from whom? We'll come back to that question in the next episode, where we're going to address Philo's esoteric interpretation. So, Moses was a philosopher. His philosophy is hidden within the books of the Pentateuch, and it turns out when you read the books of the Pentateuch with this particular philosophic hermeneutical lens, Moses was a stoicizing Middle Platonist with a strong lashing of Neopythagorean number speculations. There we have a, a very basic chronology of Philo's life and a few beginning points of orientation as to the kind of thinker and writer he was. Now let's get back to what makes Philo Western. Well, our definition of the West on the podcast is one based very much in the history of ideas. The West is defined as the grand civilizational complex characterized by the Abrahamic Hellenic synthesis. Wherever we find Jews, Christians, and Muslims in dialogue with the legacy of Greece or Greco-Roman culture, that's the West. For more information on why we think this is a useful, indeed the only really useful, definition of the West, you can check out the members episode where we interview Matthew Melvin Kushki. Otherwise, just accept that this is our working definition and we'll move on. Now, how is Philo Western given this definition? Well, the West was really born in the Hellenistic period, or at least it began to develop with the birth of Hellenized Judaism, the first truly Western cultural movement. We see the Western culture expand dramatically with the birth and spread of Christianity in the Roman period, but the Abrahamic Hellenic synthesis was sort of incubating in those parts of Second Temple Jewry, which Hellenized already in the last centuries BCE. So basically, Philo represents not only the first Western esotericist who survives, but even a prominent member of one of the first generations of true Westerners as his thought is a mature and integrated synthesis of Abrahamic faith and Hellenic ways of thinking into a new thing, which we might call Western thought or Western culture. We can even go further. Philo lived under a political and social system, which I would argue has been, if not exactly definitional, at least very typical of Western life. This is the empire, the city-states which to Plato and Aristotle defined the basic unit of political life, have played a very potent role in Western political narratives down the ages. We've talked about them a lot, but if we look at how Westerners have actually lived, we are looking for the most part either at small kingdoms or big empires. And the empires, I would argue, have been the more definitive force in shaping what it is to be Western. Why? 
Well, Alexander the Great really started this trend by founding his great transcultural empire, and his model became a norm throughout Western history. Rome, the Baghdad Caliphate, the Holy Roman Empire, the Mughal Persian Ottoman empires, the Spanish and Portuguese empires, the Dutch, British, and French colonial empires, the Polish-Lithuanian Republic, Austro-Hungary, the United States of America, the Soviet Union, in every era, the dominant powers in the West have not been some kingdom or other, but trans-ethnic multinational empires of some form or another. And the key here is the multinational. Uh, another typically Western feature of society is the cosmopolis, the city composed of peoples and cultures from all over the world. Ancient Alexandria was perhaps the first true cosmopolis. In addition to the native Egyptian, Greco-Egyptian, and Jewish populations, which are very well known, Alexandria boasted Indians, Phoenicians, and hordes of other people whom we don't even have names for, but who came from very far afield. We can contrast this with Athens in Plato's time, which was basically full of Athenians. If there were foreigners, they were mostly slaves. And if a foreigner came to visit, he was usually a Greek from another city-state. You didn't have a lot of Scythians walking around or Celts or anything like this. Not so in Alexandria. The mobility associated with imperial infrastructure and the growth of cosmopolis or cosmopolises, they go hand in hand. So there were Indians in Alexandria. There was like an Indian neighborhood because the Indians could get there. There weren't, as far as we know, too many Celts or Norsemen or other tribal peoples because they were living in places with no roads and very narrow horizons at this stage. Indians, on the other hand, were living in a place with centuries-old established land and sea routes linking India to Egypt. Their worlds were linked by empires. Thus, Philo as a fully Hellenized Jew living in the first true cosmopolis of the emerging Western world is definitionally Western. Now, all right, he's Western, but what's so esoteric about him? In fact, Philo is such a paragon, not only of esotericism in its kind of stripped down definitional sense as meaning discourse which presupposes an inner and an outer group, or discourse which presupposes an initiate, uninitiated dichotomy, but of Western esotericism in many of its typical themes and preoccupations, so much so that we could almost call him the founder of Western esotericism. We won't call him that, firstly, because he didn't actually invent most of the stuff he writes about. He just happens to have survived and also to have played a crucial role in the formation of Christianity, so that we think of him as this towering early figure. But nevertheless, it would, I think, be fair to call Philo the first writer whose works survived to any real extent, who embodies basically everything we mean when we say Western esotericist, taking time and place into account. First of all, what did the guy write? If you're looking at a reference to Philo, it will mostly come in the form of a mysterious abbreviated Latin title, like Quod Deterius, or Quaist in Gen. So basically, Philo's works have been divided up into little thematic booklets by editors, and they've given each booklet a Latin title. The commentary on the early verses of Genesis, where God creates the world and human beings, for example, is referred to as 
Opif, or De Opif, the full Latin title being De Opificio Mundi, on the crafting of the world. Now, lots of Philo survives, and lots doesn't survive. Quite a bit survives only in Armenian, but Philonic scholars have labored long and hard, and even learned Armenian, to try to reconstruct how his oeuvre as a whole was composed, and generally they agree that Philo wrote three main bodies of work, or three macro works, or you could say he had three main projects. And these have nothing to do with those Latin titles. Those Latin titles are very arbitrary. So the first main project is the Questiones, or Inquiries, and these are the ones which mostly survive in Armenian, and they have names like Questiones in Genesim, or Inquiries about the Book of Genesis. So he'll pose a question, and then look to the scriptures and see how the scriptures answer the question. Then we have the second big project, the so-called allegorical commentary. And this is a verse-by-verse esoteric interpretation of the book of Genesis. Lots of good stuff to be found here, as you can imagine, and we'll be talking about the allegorical commentary in some detail in the next episode. And lastly, we have the exposition of the law, which is often discussed under different titles, but this is one of the titles scholars have given it, a series of short treatises based on given themes. So this tripartite grouping of Philo's works, sometimes with different names, but usually in three main sections, is a fairly agreed structure for Philo's works, as he probably thought of them himself, more or less. The Latin titles don't reflect this structure at all, and so can be quite misleading, but you kind of use them because there's a tradition of using them. So that's our textual due diligence done. We now know what basic texts Philo was working on. I like to cover these matters because it took me years to get my head around the bewildering different ways Philo's works are cited and divided up, and there isn't really a standardized way of referring to him, unlike with many other classical authors. Now, Philo's work as a whole is esoteric from start to finish, in the sense that all of his works are works of scriptural exegesis, to a greater or lesser degree, but they're esoteric works of exegesis. Philo thinks that their author, Moses, was the founder of philosophy, like we've said, and like any good philosopher, Moses expressed himself not directly, but in enigmata, or hidden esoteric meanings. See episode 26 of the podcast on ancient esoteric hermeneutics, and episode 44 on stoic esoteric interpretation for the kind of reading we're talking about here. Indeed, Philo is directly inspired by both the stoic hermeneutics that we talked about in that episode, and also by the newly burgeoning Platonist styles of reading, which we can find in the scanty remains of Middle Platonism before his time. And indeed, it's in the first century BCE, just at the end of which Philo was born, when we first see a kind of growing consensus that Plato himself was an esoteric author and wrote in Enigmata. Thus, Philo is able to read the story of God's creation of the world in the, the scriptures and find in it the same story as in the creation myth of Plato's Timaeus, which we spoke about in an earlier episode. Thus, 
the creation, contrary to what many Jews believe and what most Christians believe, did not take place in time. There is no beginning of the world. The world is eternal, though created. So Philo is here adopting the mainstream reading of the Timaeus in Platonism and applying it to the Jewish story. God in Genesis doesn't simply create the world. He first creates a noetic, immaterial paradigm of the world, which then gives rise in turn to the material world we know and love. People who have read the Timaeus or listened to our episode on the Timaeus will be on very familiar territory here, but you could be forgiven for reading the book of Genesis and not finding anything about an immaterial paradigm. That's because it's expressed esoterically. This doctrine is all found through esoteric interpretation of verses that on the face of them have nothing at all to do with the creation. Philo is here combining the Timaeus account, where the Demiurge uses a pre-existing paradigm, with the Jewish account, with its emphasis on creation, to make a new synthesis, and one which would have great staying power in esoteric Christianity. For Philo, God first creates the paradigm, which then generates the world. In the Timaeus, the Demiurge doesn't create the paradigm, he just finds it and decides to use it as a model for the world. So Philo's taking both traditions and making something new with them. In the De Opificio, we have a wonderful account as well of cosmic ascent. So man is made in the image of God, the scriptures tell us. So Philo asks, in what sense? In the sense that God is a transcendent intellect, a noose, and man too has a noose or intellectual faculty, which enables him not only to know the truth, but to ascend through the cosmos and become one with the celestial bodies and actually orbit with the planets and stars, to look down upon the earth from that exalted vantage point and see all the different regions of the earth and what's going on, and then even to approach the presence of the great king himself. Although the actual sight of God is unattainable, the divine radiance being far too great for a human noose to comprehend. So the account ends in a vision of overwhelming light. So this is a heady cocktail. Here we have Hellenistic cosmology expressed in terms familiar from Hellenistic astrology, because Philo in this account uses terms that are specifically astrological. Imbued with the ascent imagery from Plato's dialogue, the Phaedrus, and expressed as a narrative which has much in common with the ascent account in the Book of Watchers in one Enoch, but is couched in the language of philosophic Middle Platonism. So keen listeners to the podcast who've been following it up till now should know all those references I just made, and those who don't, who've just maybe jumped in here, you want to go back and check out what we've talked about before, because one of the reasons we like to cover pre-Western esoteric traditions is because they inform the real Western esoteric stuff so deeply. Now, these are just a few examples to give a taste of the kind of esoteric reading that Philo gets into. His entire work is one long instance of this sort of creative reading and philosophical exegesis. In the next episode, like I said, we shall look very carefully at this mode of reading, so let's leave it for the moment and move on to discuss other aspects of Philo's esoteric credentials. The way 
Philo locates himself is very interesting and will ring some bells to lovers of Western esotericism. He says, I'm a Jew, but he doesn't just say, I'm a Jew. He is, in fact, a philosophical, esoteric perennialist. So what does that mean? Normally, when he says we, he's referring to we Jews. We think this, we believe this, we read this. But occasionally, he refers to other allegorical interpreters, that is, Platonists, Stoics, and whatever other folks were doing this kind of reading, people who know how to look for the hidden truth beneath the veil of myth. So he'll refer to these people who might be reading Homer allegorically, for example, as we. So for Philo, there's a certain kind of esoteric fraternity of religio-philosophical initiates, which transcends the boundaries of what we call religious confession. It's great to be a Jew, but if you're one of the elite esoteric readers who find the true philosophy within myth, you are on my team. And in the connection of the mysteries and initiation, we should note here that the philosophical appropriation of the mysteries which we associate with Plato, and we talked about this in some length in episode 34, whereby the ritual initiations of the actual mystery cults are reinterpreted in terms of philosophic knowledge, this is everywhere in Philo. Esoteric reading of scriptures and Platonist metaphysics are initiation. There are stages of initiation as well, but more on that in the next episode. Now, Philo also constructs a lineage for the transmission of truth, which is something that perennialists often do. In this case, his lineage is quite basic, but boy, was it influential. It goes like this, Moses, Pythagoras, Plato, names to conjure with. This is why the Mosaic account of the creation can quite logically be read in light of Plato's Timaeus. Plato was a philosopher in the lineage of Moses. Now, this type of wisdom lineage is a major feature of esoteric traditions, and we're going to see it throughout the Islamic Middle Ages, and when it reemerges in the Far West in authors like Marsilio Ficino, this is actually because they were reading Philo and other Middle Platonist perennialist authors. Philo is, I think, the first fully-fledged Platonist perennialist. Plato himself, of course, made many tantalizing references to ancient Egyptian wise men and mystery rites and other kind of ancient knowledge traditions which you could mine for philosophic wisdom. But for a fully-fledged perennialism with a named chain of transmission, we look to Philo. He was probably not the first to think this way, but he seems to be the first one on record. He was not the last. Now, thirdly, in terms of esoteric credentials, is Philo's approach to the divine. In late antiquity, as we shall see, Late Antiquity is the period roughly from about 200-250 CE up until whenever you decide the Middle Ages start, right? So the late Roman period. But when we get to Late Antiquity, as we shall see, it's actually a bit more problematic than that. Nevertheless, in Late Antiquity, as we shall see, everyone from Gnostics to Platonists to the Hermetic authors to Christian theologians, everyone is saying that God or the first principle, or the ultimate reality, is ineffable. That is, 
the human mind and human language simply cannot do justice to this reality. Its transcendence puts it beyond the ability of discourse to comprehend. Cue the Deus absconditus, the hidden god of late antique religions. But in our period, at what you might call the end of the Hellenistic and the beginning of the Roman imperial period, no one is talking this way. No one that is except Philo. Now, no one can agree on what it was that caused Philo to place such an emphasis on God's transcendence. But whatever the reasons, maybe thinking through of Plato's Parmenides, Neo-Pythagorean speculations on the monad, scriptural exegesis in which God's majesty and exalted nature are emphasized, visions, or most likely a nice spicy mix of all of these influences. Whatever the reasons, Philo is about 100 to 150 years ahead of the game in that he says of God that he's totally ineffable, transcendent, beyond any analogies with the normal world and the things in it. It's impossible for mankind to understand God's nature. God is ineffable, inconceivable, incomprehensible. Uh, here's a passage from the embassy to Gaius, chapter 6. That's the, the work where he describes his trip to Rome, translated by John Dillon in his book, The Middle Platonists. Note, before I read the passage, that he who is is Philo's favorite name for the Hebrew god. So this is a Greek take on the well-known burning bush incident where Moses says, who are you? And God says, I am that I am in the uh, King James Version. So it's a kind of mix of that and a Platonist ontological affirmation of pure being. So he who is, that's God. Now let's read the quote. For reason, logos, cannot attain to God, who is totally untouchable and unattainable, but it subsides and ebbs away, unable to find the proper words to use as a basis to reveal, I do not say him who is, for even if the whole heaven should become an articulate voice, it would lack the apt and appropriate terms needed for this. But even God's attendant powers. So, not only God transcends our can, even his powers are beyond our ability to comprehend or describe. Philo is getting heavy in the first century CE. Now, we won't say too much about this now, but we shall return to it in the next episode and in later episodes when we discuss the rise of apophaticism or negative theology in later antiquity. This is one of our favorite literary genres here at the Schwepp because apophatic writers at their best are literally telling us that everything they're telling us about the first principle, they're not really telling us that. This is, as Michael Sells has put it, a form of unsaying which expresses the unexpressible. And when we come to assess the importance of Philo in this tradition, we shall see that even if he's not quite the founder of apophaticism that scholars like Wolfson have tried to make him, he is certainly miles ahead of the rest of the apophatic tradition. And there must be a reason for that. It might have something to do with Alexandria because Alexandria seems to have been an absolute hotbed for this sort of thing, as we'll see when we get to thinkers like Basilides. But at any rate, he has the honor of being the first extant writer to apply Greek terms like akatanomastos, arretos, and akataleptos, that is, unnameable, ineffable, ungraspable, to God. 
Indeed, we've mentioned this term aretos before in the podcast as a technical term in the mystery cults for the mystic secrets which cannot be spoken about in the presence of the uninitiated. So the word basically means secret or not, literally not to be said. Here in Philo, we see the term in the process of transformation, and it may have even been Philo who did the transforming to some degree, into the technical philosophic term for ineffable. And if that's not esoteric, I don't know what is. So those are a few of the broad strokes of Philo's esotericism. His esoteric hermeneutical project, which blended Jewish scriptures and neo-Pythagoreanizing, stoicizing Middle Platonism into a seamless system of thought. His construction of an esoteric lineage of truth, starting with Moses and embracing Pythagoras and Plato, and his innovation in apophatic discourse, his statements of strong transcendence. Now, in many ways, Philo was a fairly typical Middle Platonist philosopher, except, of course, for his Judaism, which makes him actually utterly unique among surviving writers. But in the radical transcendence which he attributes to God, he was way ahead of the game, even for a Middle Platonist. In the short time left to us, it would be nice to say a few things about more of the content of Philo's philosophy to give a sketch of how he saw the world. One thing listeners will notice is that the Hellenistically informed, sophisticated, philosophic and scientific background of Philo's thought puts it miles away from any of the other materials we've looked at in our history of Second Temple Judaism. We've had an awful lot of apocalyptic and hechelot texts along with some magical materials. Now we are dealing with an urbane, highly educated, philosophically cutting-edge, aristocratic Jew with a rhetorical, polished style. We are a long way from the arid valley of Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were being written in a sort of hothouse atmosphere of cultic frenzy. There are no fevered expectations of the end times in Philo. There are no magical rituals in Philo, although the normal rituals of Jewish life are approved of, since they are all, of course, informed with esoteric philosophical meanings due to Moses' role as lawgiver. So Moses, of course, gave the Jews all their customs, but these customs are actually worthwhile because they have secret philosophic meanings. This is a very different cultural world from anything we've seen so far, and um, it brings us, I think, firmly into an urban and indeed cosmopolitan milieu which is where so much of later Western esotericism has grown and flourished. It also shows us that Second Temple Judaism was a truly diverse phenomenon. So, what does such an urban cosmopolitan Jew of the first century think about the universe? Here we're going to be drawing on a lot of the earlier episodes of the podcast where we talked about Plato, about Stoicism, and about Neo-Pythagoreanism and the Pseudo-Pythagorean texts of the Hellenistic period. So if you haven't heard those episodes and you don't know anything about these things, you're going to want to probably go back and listen to them. So Philo thinks that God created the immaterial noetic archetype of the world, as we mentioned, which then was used as the blueprint for the world that we know. The world that we know is the geocentric world of planetary spheres which we covered in episode 40 on Hellenistic astronomy. So Philo, in terms of his cosmology, is scientifically up-to-date. He's um, going on the, the most current and 
most empirically proven model of the cosmos available. The supreme god is an utterly ineffable first principle. From this principle arose several subsidiary divine principles, and Philo gives different names for these and accounts for them differently in different places, so it's pretty much impossible to create a kind of concrete system. And we can't really go into the whole story here for reasons of time, although it is fascinating. But one thing we have to talk about is Philo's idea of the Logos. So listeners will recall that in episode 45 on Stoic physics and esoteric metaphysics, we discussed the Stoic doctrine of Logos, which for them was a rational creative principle within the fabric of the universe itself. We also mentioned that this idea of Logos as a kind of divine reality rather than simply as reason or discourse, which is the normal meaning of the term Logos, would bear esoteric fruit later on. Well, gentle listener, that time has arrived. While Philo's Logos doctrine is much indebted to Stoicism, it's something very different from the Stoic idea. Rather than a creative power within the fabric of reality, Philo's Logos is God's creative power. It's also the world of forms. It's also, in one place, described as the firstborn son of God. And in another, even more striking passage, the supreme God has a wife named Sophia, or Wisdom, who gives birth to the Logos. So God's wisdom, Sophia, is often described in in various Hebrew writings as a kind of feminine goddess-like figure, though she's never called a goddess, Philo interprets these references as references to a female divine principle, in essence a goddess, though he doesn't call her that, of course. And God actually has a child with her, the Logos, which is the world of forms, and it's also God's creative power, so it's sort of like a second god or a demiurgic figure who goes on to create the world. Now, we shall return to Philo's Logos doctrine, and the figure of Sophia will appear again in the podcast as well. But for the moment, let's just say that all this is perhaps not as shocking as it may at first seem. Yes, Philo is a monotheist, but he is a Greek monotheist in a way. So he's quite happy to talk about other beings than the highest gods as gods, theoi in Greek. The Logos is a god, also called the name of God. The planets are manifest and perceptible gods, following Plato. Even Moses is changed into a god when he climbs Mount Sinai to receive the divine revelation. So Philo is a monotheist, but a monotheist who is not afraid to speak of multiple theoi. For him, there's no contradiction here. There is a supreme transcendent god. It's very clear that there's only one of those You can call these subsidiary divine beings gods, it's not a big deal. Philo also believes in angels, and he says explicitly these are what the Greeks call daimones. So, subtle beings who exist in the air between the planets and us on Earth, and kind of go back and forth with messages and stuff. But it gets better. Human souls are also the same thing as the angels stroke daimones. And the upper atmosphere is full of daimonese angels' souls going up and down from and towards God. Now, Philo's ideas about the afterlife are highly disputed, but in at least one text, On Dreams, it's called, he comes out as supporting reincarnation. 
as we've seen in the Pythagorean and Platonist traditions. There are several other texts as well where he might be stating this position, but it's very, very subtle and very much argumentation has gone on about this. The argument of one recent book, however, is that he believed, like Plato and Pythagoras, in the reincarnation of souls, but did not feel that he could express this belief openly because presumably the mass of Jews would be very unhappy about it. Philo has a doctrine of immaterial forms, as we've mentioned, but with a few special twists again. So Philo is the first known formulator of a doctrine which would play a major role in later speculations. That is, that the forms are ideas in the mind of God. So in the Timaeus, for example, and many places in Plato, the forms are just eternal. And if there are gods, they kind of deal with the forms, which they find already there. In Philo, this is shifted. The forms are inside the Logos, which is a kind of second god or power of god. So Philo here precedes Plotinus by about 200 years in stating that the forms are within the divine mind. And we shall see this idea cropping up again and again throughout the Middle Ages and beyond. It's a, a very, very important uh, formulation for how reality works. The forms for Philo are also mathematical, and he has long and involved passages of numerical symbolism of the kind that we touched on in our episode 47 on Neo-Pythagorean number speculation. He wrote a treatise called On Numbers, which is unfortunately lost, but if we look at the on the crafting of the world, more than a quarter of it is pure arithmological speculation, including a fantastic encomium on the number seven, which has always been a favorite number of mine. What emerges from all this is an idea of the forms as numbers, and so of reality as having an underlying mathematical basis, but also of numbers as conveyors of esoteric meaning such that numerical interpretation of scriptural texts is possible and it can lead to the unearthing of secret doctrines hidden within the text. Lovers of the Kabbalah will be going, oh my goodness, already in the first century? Yes, gentle listeners, Philo was ahead of the game in a lot of ways. We haven't incidentally seen anything like this in Second Temple Judaism. Not to the degree, I mean, many Second Temple Judaic texts have importance attached to three and seven and so on and so forth. But to do this kind of esoteric arithmological speculation, Philo is really the first person we have who does this, at least on the scale to which he does it. And speaking of the next episode, that is all that we have time for now. So join us next time for an exploration of Philo's esoteric hermeneutics, whereby he interrogates the Jewish scriptures and finds endless layers of hidden messages and meanings which can never be exhausted. And until then, imitate the works of Moses and stay esoteric.